0: Hello readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Dr. Jonathan Reisman on The Unseen Body. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the science and medicine category for episode number 105 with Sir Paul Nurse on What is Life? My name is Paul Nurse. I've
1: written a book, What is Life? If you read it, you will understand what biology is, what life is, and you will do it in five simple steps. And this is Books on Pod by Trey Elling.
0: Hello readers. Jonathan Reisman, MD, is a doctor of internal medicine and pediatrics who has practiced at Massachusetts General Hospital, as well as some of the world's most remote places. As a writer, his work has appeared in the New York Times, Slate, Washington Post, and more. And he's just published his first book titled The Unseen Body A Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of Human Anatomy. John, thank you so much for the time today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me today.
0: It's my pleasure. So, in reading this book, I learned a lot about your life, and that includes uh, the fact that before you ever thought about being a medical professional, you loved exploring nature. How did the observational skills that you learned outside help prepare you to be a better doctor in the long-term?
1: Well, I think when I was first in medical school, learning about all the body parts and bodily fluids, every single uh, part of the body, I had to learn in really tremendous detail get to know it on a very, uh, a very detailed level, both on the macroscopic view, you know, handling it, handling the organs, understanding how they work, as well as the microscopic view, the cellular view, the molecular view, getting to know it in many different levels, in different um, moods, both in health and in disease. It really reminded me of um, when I had first gotten interested in the natural world in college, I kind of was getting to know all these different species in the natural world, species of plants and animal and fungi, learning about how they live their daily lives, uh, you know, who they eat, who eats them, uh, what they look like, how to tell them apart from similar appearing species, you know, you, you learn them on a, a very tremendous detail, a detailed level. And as you meet specimen after specimen of a given species and uh, learn more and more about it, you know, you build up this kind of familiarity in your head where it becomes this other creature or other being that you really know on a very intimate level, almost like a friend and really body parts became that way as well. Getting to know them, uh, seeing them in patient after patient and getting to know them over the years, they sort of became like, um, became like, like friends in a way, a a familiar face that you'd recognize. And the same goes for disease actually. So identifying disease is very similar to identifying um, species in the natural world. So, um, you know, uh, getting to know pneumonia after pneumonia in different flavors, different shades of gray, uh, this symptom, that symptom, you know, you, you build up the of familiarity and you, you recognize it when you see it, like a friend's face almost. So it, there's a lot of parallels that I found between the, the medical world and the natural world.
0: So this book is broken down by chapter with each chapter having to do with a specific body part or in some cases an excretion that is the result of bodily functions, starting with chapter one, the throat. You didn't think much about the throat early in your career. How did an elderly patient named Suzanne help you understand the wisdom of the throat's design?
1: Right, so when I first learned about the throat in medical school, it seemed like a very stupidly designed body part, which was unusual because everything about the body seemed so intelligently designed, so perfectly coordinated to keep us healthy throughout our daily lives. But the throat seems very dangerous, in fact, because specifically because the, the entrance to the body for air into the windpipe and the lungs was very, very close, right up against the entrance for food, into the esophagus and down to the stomach. And so as we all know, um, you know if you are trying to speak while swallowing or laughing while eating, often it's very easy for food or drink to go down the wrong tube and Um, with these tubes so close together really right up against each other in the throat you make one small mistake in swallowing and you can die Um, and we swallow hundreds of times each day both consciously and unconsciously and so it seemed to favor to not favor life really to be very precarious and to kind of put everyone close to uh to dying on a daily basis seemed very unintelligent in fact but as you said I had a patient named Suzanne and I could have actually written about many other patients I had in a similar condition. Uh, Her story was not very unique. She was an elderly patient who had been suffering from dementia. She had been declining mentally and physically, and I saw her hospitalized with pneumonia for a second time, Um, and specifically a kind of pneumonia called aspiration pneumonia, which is often caused by something going down the wrong wrong pipe, really going down the, the windpipe into the lungs causing pneumonia instead of where it should have gone down the esophagus. So that could be food, drink, saliva, anything. And to, also, to, to top off all the dangers of the throat, in fact, the number one pneumonia causing bacteria in the world lives right in our throat, right above the lungs where it can just sneak down there and cause pneumonia to kill us so easily. So all that amounted to a very dangerous situation. And Suzanne was a patient suffering from that, that precarious design of the throat but as i cared for her her second hospitalization and she did pass away it got me thinking about her you know something we often think about when we treat hospitalized elderly and debilitated patients as their quality of life and you know while it's never for the doctor to decide what's what counts for quality and what counts for lack of quality in someone else's life i did think about how she, her she had lost the ability to talk to recognize her relatives to really enjoy any aspect of life and with that same decline in her mentation her throat's coordination declined as well, putting her at increased risk of aspiration. When I reflected on the situation, it seemed like that precarious design of the throat um, seems to actually be in, in some ways a positive when you're uh, very debilitated and your quality of life has sunken so low. You know, it's almost a way out um, where the throat kind of gives up its lifelong juggling act of keeping food and drink out of the out of the windpipe and sort of gives you a way. A way out of life. And aspiration pneumonia has actually been called old man's friend in the past because it does provide this sort of dignified way out of life for those who have been suffering in a prolonged way.
0: Chapter two is on the heart. In writing about the cardiovascular system, you compare blood vessels to the earth's waterways. Why are those two things analogous?
1: Great question. Well, um, they're analogous. It, on a very superficial level simply because they look similar, you know, when you're in a plane flying over the land, you can see some sometimes very beautiful uh, views of rivers that are branching and, you know, each um, each little stream joins with other little streams and progressively becomes a bigger and bigger stream as, as more and more waterways join and the volume of water uh, grows, you know, so that branching pattern uh, of drainage on the land is is a very common sight from an airplane. And when you look at the human body, it's a very similar situation. You know, every cell in the body, every organ, every tissue, has its drainage where uh, used blood drains through the veins that coalesce into bigger and bigger veins um, and then, you know eventually gather into the biggest vein of all, the superior vena cava or the inferior vena cava. those are the two kind of largest venous rivers, if you will, in the body. Um and so just like, rivers heading towards the sea growing in volume as they do coalescing with uh, more and more streams, you know, there's that pattern alone. Um, another step, step to sort of seeing another simula- similarity on a more complicated level is when I understood how to uh, diagnose a heart attack, for instance, or a stroke, uh, you're kind of understanding the branching blood vessels that go to the heart or go to the brain in a stroke. Um, and uh, you're, you have to understand kind of watersheds in a way um, you have to understand the branching and by assessing the patient or in a, in a heart attack, looking at the EKG, you're sort of mentally walking through these branching rivers into the heart or into the brain to understand where the problem is, whether it's a blood clot cl- causing a heart attack or a blood clot causing a stroke, you're walking through internal watersheds of cardiovascular blood flow just as you are, as I experienced in some of my travels, when you're um, navigating through watersheds, having to cross a mountain pass, for instance, where there's no roads, you have to kind of know which branch to take. You have to almost have a conception of this branching watershed in your head and know always which branch to take and how the different branches split and coalesce. And it's actually very similar to understanding the the kind of the blood flow pattern that's needed to diagnose strokes and heart attacks as well
0: chapter three is one of my favorite chapters it's on feces several different topics to get to here starting with uh, an admission for you that early in your education with medicine an older doctor gave you an important piece of advice on truly learning whether a patient had diarrhea what did he tell you to ask them and why is this so valuable
1: Great question. And yeah, you know, I, I, I thought about saving the feces chapter for later in the book, maybe <laughs> to not throw the reader right into the deep end of what it means to work in healthcare. But I decided against it because, you know, when I started medical school on the very first day, after a few lectures, they brought us into the anatomy lab where we, we would dissect a cadaver. And so they sort of just threw us right at, right at it. Basically, here, here's a dead body and here's a scalpel. Now, you know, go learn everything about it. Um, so I, we were thrown into the deep end. So I kind of wanted to simulate that experience for the reader. So feces ended up being the third chapter. It worked. I'm glad. I don't think everyone would agree, but um, some people perhaps. Okay. Um, but yeah, so, you know, when you learn, when you talk to patients, there's a lot of terms that have very imprecise definitions, right? So the terms, let's say constipation and diarrhea, uh, many different people have different conceptions of what that means. It's not just enough. I often, when I teach residents and medical students how to question patients, I often say, you can't just ask, are you constipated? Or do you have diarrhea? Because those questions are very open to interpretation. And what's normal for one person could be severe constipation for another. And you know, what's normal for another might be diarrhea for the third, et cetera. So you really have to pry. You really have to get into the dirty details of this you know, everyday aspect of the human body that all of us experience. Um, but, but understanding what's going on in the patient's life, seeing into their bathroom, even into their toilet, through conversation with them is an essential part of being a doctor. Um, so as one very wise doctor, who I uh, thanked in the acknowledgements, who taught me a lot about medicine, not only about this topic, he told me that to truly know if someone has diarrhea, just ask them flat out, are you pissing out of your butt? And if they say yes, or they chuckle with recognition, then they definitely have diarrhea. that that is useful too for cutting through like the the ambiguity of those terms
0: so while in medical school you took a break to spend a year working in india as an excuse to not only see the world but also to experience how other cultures practice medicine in writing about this experience you detailed a common affliction westerners suffer from while spending time in india a severe stomach bug nicknamed Delhi belly. It involves a lot of uncontrollable diarrhea. And eventually you had to deal with it as part of your state in India as well. As anybody who has suffered through this knows, you will eventually reach a point where things are so raw and possibly bloody down there that even the softest toilet paper uh, feels like sandpaper on the anus. You did eventually reach this point too, which led to you trying the Indian style way of wiping. What is this? Why do they do it this way? And did it help, John?
1: All good questions. And let me just say, you know, it's rare to read a a memoir with a scene in the bathroom. So I just want to say, (laughs) you know, my book has perhaps a more detailed bathroom scene than many other um, memoirs, I would say. But yes, so I did learn to wipe the Indian way when I, um, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, as you detailed there in some detail as well, um, you know, having an intestinal effect, infection in India or really any part of the world um, can be very difficult on the stomach as well as the, ba- uh, the behind. So um, what I learned there was, I learned when I first got there, actually, that Indian people traditionally wipe their bottoms in a, in a different way than us. They don't use toilet paper. They basically use their left hand along with a stream of water. Um, and I... that Actually, on the first day I got to India, the very first day, a group of medical students in Mumbai that sort of adopted me and I stayed in their dorm, they explained to me that was one of my first questions because I sort of knew uh, but wanted to hear more of the details. Um, And I for sure vowed that I would never do that. Uh, But as you mentioned, you know, when diarrhea starts wearing you down, you'll you'll consider almost anything. Um, In the chapter, I talk about, uh, you know, a treatment, uh, medical treatment that involves Uh, eating another person's stool as a medical therapy to fix your own severe diarrhea and uh, in a parallel to what I experienced in India when you have severe diarrhea ruining your life you'll try just about anything so so I did try it the water was you know I found it very soothing it's very quick the job is done Um, and uh, I became quite a fan and in fact um, at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic when there was a shortage of toilet paper it was always an option in the back of my head, although I never fully ran out, but uh, but it was there as a as a, a good option.
0: I'm going to keep it in the back of my mind the next time I suffer through diarrhea. I'm like you, though, as uh, everybody was snatching up toilet paper, I actually went to Amazon and bought a couple of bidets for the house just in case, yeah, and uh, yeah, fortunately- it uh, never came down to not having any toilet paper in the house, but now we do have the, the day option as well. Now, you just mentioned the desperation of literally consuming another person's feces to ha- try and help with a stomach issue. Uh, you do talk about fecal transplants in this chapter and why that, while that might uh, call, um, cause some people to recoil, this is a legitimate medical therapy. How are they administered? Why do they work? And which illnesses benefit from such a treatment, John?
1: Currently, it seems like the, um, the the most studied use of this therapy, which is called a fecal, fecal microbiome transplant or fecal microbiota transplant or FMT. But currently, the most researched indication is a particular kind of infectious diarrhea called C. diff or clostridium difficile, which is very virulent and can be very aggressive and can in severe cases require the surgical removal of a person's colon. Um, and C. diff is, has been a growing problem in healthcare for the last few decades, increasingly so. And part of the reason, uh, part of the the situation that puts people at risk of C. diff infection, is taking antibiotics. Which, while you know, there's often a need for them, they're they're killing some infection. Um, you know, they're sort of indiscriminate in the microbi- the microbes that they kill. So while they're killing, let's say, that bacteria causing your pneumonia or your urinary tract infection, they're also depleting some of the normal healthy bacteria um, in the large intestine or colon. And that sort of empty ecological niche makes room for bacteria like uh, opportunists, like Clostridium difficile or C. diff, to kind of proliferate and grow in those now empty uh, ecological niches in, in the colon. And so, you know, it makes perfect sense in theory, right? If you, if, if a depletion of normal, healthy bacteria gives C. diff a chance to get a foothold and grow, then repleting or, you know, replacing that depleted bacteria by taking the healthy stool from someone else, all the bacteria and other microbes inside of it, you know, getting it back into your colon. It makes sense that it would then kind of fend off um, C. diff. And in some studies, it is, in fact, more effective than, uh, antibiotics, which is a standard treatment for C diff. there as far as I know, there have not been any uh, studies of people who have their first case of C diff to compare antibiotics and FMT. Really, there's only second and third and beyond uh, instances where someone has C diff treated and then it comes back a second time or even sometimes a third time, which is uh, illustrative. as I said before, you know it's only once people uh, are their lives are being ruined by diarrhea that they're willing to try such a iconoclastic Uh, therapy like ingesting another person's stool but uh, they actually haven't been able to get enough volunteers with first time c diff to volunteer for this unusual and very untraditional therapy
0: hey a couple centuries ago people were having to drink something called yellow tea which is essentially uh steeped feces to try and get rid of uh, microbial issues so we've come a long way since then indeed Chapter four covers the genitals, pun intended there, I guess. Why do bodily rhythms come up in the chapter dedicated to genitals?
1: And so, As I learned in medical school, much of the body is, is about rhythms. You know, the heartbeat is a rhythm. Breathing is a rhythm. Blood circulating, eyes blinking, uh, you know, eating food, defecating, urinating. Everything is in a cycle that constantly goes round and round. Um, just like a rhythm, and the body is almost, you know, each organ has its own rhythms, its own processes that occur again and again. Um, and so the body, as I learned about it, almost seemed like a, a collection of different rhythms sort of all beating into their own drum. Um, and, you know, the genitals sort of seemed like the most unusual one, um, especially the female genital tract, you know, the, the uterus doesn't start its rhythm, its monthly rhythm of menstruation doesn't start until after the first decade of life um, for females. And um, that's very unusual. You know, most rhythms are already started by the time you're born and breathing is the rhythm that kind of starts right after you're born. And then in the following days, there's, you urinate for the first time, defecate for the first time, et cetera. Um, You know, but once you're out of the hospital home, a week old, most things have started. Um, But, you know menstruation unusually in an unusual fashion takes another decade to start and another way in which uh, you know the gen- I found the general rhythms to be very unusual for the body in that fashion but also in another way which is that uh, you know as a doctor I'm I'm constantly assessing the rhythms of my patients bodies I'm assessing their heart rate assessing their breathing rate you know these are the most foundational aspects of assessing the health of another human body And that's why we are always checking these. We call them vital signs because they are vital, these basic rhythms. Um, You know, when these rhythms stop, it's an emergency. So if the heartbeat stops, that's cardiac arrest. That person needs CPR, perhaps an electric shock. Breathing stops, that person might need, someone needs to breathe for them, you know, a breathing tube, a ventilator. Um, When rhythms stop, it implies disease. But uh, menstruation, you know, the most kind of prominent genital rhythm, is unusual in that when it stops, it's almost uh, the purpose of that rhythm in the first place. So that's pregnancy, right? The, the way that people have always known that someone is pregnant is because the monthly beat of menstruation stops. And in that case, a complete stopping of the rhythm is, is success of the rhythm instead of failure. Um, so it's unusual in, in that way as well.
0: I also loved your comparison of genitals to music, but people are going to have to pick up the book to check that part out Uh, as a food nerve, uh, a food nerd chapter five on the liver struck the perfect tone for me. This section on the liver takes the reader on a culinary adventure, John, around the body with the liver, kidneys, pancreas, and bone marrow, AKA God's butter. But how did a trip to Iceland provide the most anatomical meal of your life?
1: Yeah, so I, I did get interested in kind of anatomical foods while I was a medical student, as I write about in a few chapters. Um, when I went to Iceland, actually on my honeymoon, um, I, uh, a friend's mother uh, served a very unusual dish called sfid, which is basically like a head cheese, uh, but kind of left on the head. So it's basically a, a lamb's head split down the middle and, and cooked and served that way, kind of on a half skull, if you will. And, uh, you know, it it looked just like my uh, medical school textbook, basically. Uh, I studied that same Mm cross-section of the head and face many times uh, in anatomy lab and and other classes that I had to learn. And it's always been kind of the most complicated and, uh, you know, part of the body since it's such an intersection of so many different things going on, sensory organs and the throat, as we had already talked about, and other things. Um, the head and face are a very complicated body part. So when I was looking down at my plate, it felt like I was looking down at my textbook as well as looking down at a cross-section of my own face, um, which was, which was uh, interesting and sort of gave me a good philosophical perspective as I thought about it in the days following, um, you know, thought about kind of how things turn into, living creatures turn into food and, you know, living things tr- as, when they die become food for others, um, kind of part of the circle of life. Uh, But it was actually quite good, I have to say.
0: I'm glad to hear that because much like you, I'm an adventurous eater. And literally one of the worst things I've ever tried to eat was lamb's neck. So it's good to know that the full experience of the head maybe helps out with that.
1: I'd like to think maybe it could just be cooked better than the sample you had.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's fair fair too. Uh, Chapter six is on a part of the body that I had never heard of before, the pineal gland. What exactly is the pineal gland?
1: Yeah, so um, pineal gland is kind of this tiny little endocrine organ tucked deep in the brain, almost in the center. When I, when I look at a head scan, a head CT, as I do often in my job in the emergency room of people, I see it there and it's sort of like in the very center of the brain. And I think its function has been very misunderstood over the centuries. Um, it's, you know, everything from spiritual matters to other things have been ascribed to it. It was actually the last endocrine organ of the body to sort of be deciphered to understand its function. And to some extent, it's still very um, very little known, but it seems like its main function is to secrete the uh, hormone melatonin, which helps uh, kind of prepare the body for bed. You know when we when we sort of get tired toward the end of the day, maybe start to feel a little cold, that can actually be a sign that melatonin is being secreted. and mm. it's sort of usually secreted a few hours before bedtime. In that way, it sort of uh, keeps the body's daily rhythm, what we call the circadian rhythm, in tune with the sun rising and setting. Um, And, you know, as I talk about in the chapter, people have very different uh, circadian rhythms. Some people are owls up at night. Some people are larks up in the morning. Um, And when I first started medical school, I had an abrupt and a a very uh, difficult training where I sort of came in as an owl. And was forced to be a lark by getting up very early since the schedule of, as anyone hospitalized knows, doctors round very early and wake you up ruthlessly. And I was guilty of that, too. And so this chapter has some realizations about what a jerk a doctor can be, to be honest.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you point that out. Have hospitals over time started to modify how often they're waking patients up at night unnecessarily to check vitals and give medications and things like that?
1: There has definitely been recognition in recent years um, that it's a problem. And there have definitely been a lot of efforts to change it. Have they been successful? I think not always. Um, It's it's very hard to, you know, these build, most hospitals were built decades ago. It's very hard to sometimes refashion them to let natural light in, which can help with circadian rhythms. They let in very little light, especially if you get the, the bed near the door in a shared room you almost get no natural light um yes we have tried have we succeeded you know not always but there is a lot of efforts to decrease um noise pollution you know alarms are constantly going off at night and i think there's a recognition among doctors i know i start when i worked in the hospital not in the er i did start offering people a lot more um you know earplugs and other ways of you know do not disturb signs on the door less vital signs at night, less medic- medication administration scheduled for ungodly hours, just because sort of it fits the doctor's schedule or the nurse's sign-out schedule. So it's, it's a, an ongoing effort. Overall, I would say it, the progress has been minimal. Um, but then again, you know, even in normal life, uh, modern life and technology sort of annihilates uh, sleep with an increasing, you know, aggression. So it's, it's a big problem, both in and out, out of the hospital.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, technology has only made that problem worse over the last 10 to 20 years now. Chapter seven is on the brain. You provided medical aid for a village in the Himalayas, which uh, altitude-wise would have been nearly halfway up Mount Everest. And you treated a lot of headaches, John. Why do our brains swell the further we get from sea level?
1: A great question. And and there's a lot of theories, but I'm not sure anyone actually knows for sure. Um, but, you know, the symptoms that we get when we travel to high altitude, especially when we ascend too quickly and outstrip our body's ability to acclimatize, which itself is a mysterious and fascinating process that occurs in some in some. Sometimes in better, sometimes occurs in uh, better in some people than others, and it's not always related to physical fitness at all. Seems almost more genetic, perhaps. But some people will never get altitude sickness, and some people very easily suffer from it, even without um, gaining altitude that quickly. Uh, but you know, the two main organs affected are the brain and the lungs. Uh, when you ascend too quickly, um, the brain being the much more important and much common much more common uh, afflicted organism, uh, rather organ. But uh, when you when you go up in altitude for some reason your brain swells if it's if that's to a very small degree, then you would come down with acute mountain sickness, which is sort of the most mild form of altitude sickness and you get a headache, you sleep poorly, you're nauseous, dizzy, weak. Um, but if the brain swelling goes beyond a critical threshold, you know the brain is sort of stuffed inside this rigid, case of the skull that cannot expand at all, and there's very little room to spare. So if the swelling uh, gets past a critical threshold and pressure inside the head starts to uh, increase, you can the brain can start to malfunction, you know, and the brain, everything it does can start to go wrong. One of the first things that goes wrong is the uh, coordination. So the cerebellum and part of the brainstem are what coordinates your ability to walk without falling over. And so in my clinic there in the town of Manang, uh, the Himalayan Rescue Association Clinic, I often assess people with the symptoms of acute mountain sickness. I would have them walk in a heel-to-toe fashion, so putting the heel of each foot against the toes of the other, walking in a straight line almost like a policeman uh, might if if they thought you were intoxicated. And if they do that okay, then their diagnosis is acute mountain sickness. And if I see that they are uncoordinated in trying to do that, then I might diagnose them with the more severe condition, high altitude cerebral edema, which is just swelling of the brain at high altitude. And it's the most common cause of altitude related uh, death uh, when people climb some of the highest mountains in Nepal. Um, you know, Besides the usual falling and trauma and heart attacks, et cetera, um, HACE or high altitude cerebral edema is, is the biggest problem. And I sort of liked that, that as I learned about it and experienced it and diagnosed it and treated it, even had some symptoms of myself, but at least with acute mountain sickness. I never had hay uh, symptoms, thankfully. But um, I sort of liked that, you know, the the organ that's most affected when you go to altitude is our highest altitude organ, the brain. And it's sort of the highest, most kind of, um, you know, impressive and most loved organ since that's where we see ourselves living inside our own brains. And so um, sort of ascending to the Himalayas and experiencing the kind of otherworldly qualities there sort of, um, in some ways had parallels with uh, the mystery, but importance of the brain.
0: One of your patients there had served as a female teacher of Tibetan Buddhism and visiting the cave that she had lived in for nearly 40 years. You got to talking and the conversation eventually turned to meditation, which led to you asking her where she thought the brain ends and the mind begins. So I now have to ask you, John, where (laughs) does the brain end? And the mind began.
1: It's a, a very important question. Um, I think I would have to say that it depends what you mean by the mind. but um, you know I think as I talk about in the chapter, in some ways, the mind is a you know is just a tool for for understanding uh, the mental illness in other people. You know the mind is sort of shorthand for what happens when all the different parts of the brain and perception and memory, all, swirl together into what we call consciousness or experience you know we we call it the mind but is there really anything there besides the brain and you know chemical and electrical firings um there is i would say and that's what we call the mind but what is it i don't think we really know Um, but there's something to this experience and you know different people depending on their worldview on their religion on their philosophy will will tell you different things um but uh you does the brain exude the mind like a, like the, uh, the liver secretes bile or like the pancreas secretes enzymes into the gut? You know, is there something there, some secretion uh, that we just can't measure? It's hard to say, but, you know, still for a psychiatrist, as I talk about in the chapter, the main way to investigate the mind and whether it's working correctly or perhaps it's ill is just through conversation. And that's kind of all we have right now, um, for understanding the mind, you know, the brain, we can understand in many ways. I can graze my finger across your skin in any part of your body and if you feel it, I know what part of the brain is working right. And if I tell you to move this limb or that limb or look this way or that way, I'm also testing a part of the brain. And I can say that part is working correctly or that part is working incorrectly. You know I can do an EEG to measure the brain's electricity. I can do a CAT scan, MRI, ultrasound, You can do an ultrasound, mostly only in infants who still have the fontanelle open, because in adults, it's hard to get ultrasound, uh, you know, sound waves through the skull. But anyway, there's many ways to image the brain. But the mind, really, there's only conversation with another human. Maybe in the future when we know more and the fields of psychiatry and neurology merge into one, you know, maybe then we'll have better ways of measuring it. But for now, it's still just that.
0: Do you engage in any mindfulness practices?
1: Um, You know, I don't. I have experimented a lot in the past. Um, I don't have any regular practice, though it wouldn't be incorrect to say I wish I did. Um, But, you know, I I think some certain hobbies I have getting out into nature um, can be very meditative, even when you're not trying.
0: Absolutely. Going into nature and not having to worry about the hustle and bustle of the world around us is incredibly helpful for our attention spans, our creativity, and uh, also I would have to say just our overall consciousness.
1: I agree. And I wish I did that more as well.
0: <laughs> Don't we all, chapter eight, uh, the subject of chapter eight is the skin. Why do you call the skin intelligent?
1: Uh, because it is, let me explain. You know, when I started medical school, you know, the skin, we sort of think of it as this, just a covering, you know, protects us from the outside world. Um, You know, this dry outer crust of the otherwise rather moist body, um, sort of designed to fend off claws and antler tips and coffee table corners. And it usually works. Um, But uh, once I started studying it, um, as I talk about in the chapter, started dia- learning to diagnose diseases of the skin and also reading the skin to understand what's happening inside the body. You know, the skin is almost like a screen on which the in- our insides broadcast messages about their well-being or, or, uh, or disease. And, you know, reading those signs is an important part of diagnosing disease and treating it as well. Um, But skin is, skin is very intelligent. You know, it, it, when, when it does get cut, let's say, you know, we often sew it up in the emergency room, we, we close the wound, but even if we didn't, in most cases it would close on its own, you know, skin regenerates very well, very impressively cells kind of invade from the margins of the wound and fill it up. Eventually you might get a scar, but the skin will close. You know, the body always kind of always wants to close any hole in the skin naturally, almost like nature abhors the vacuum you know, the skin abhors defects in it. Um, so, but even beyond that, you know, skin, if, you, if you're rubbing skin repeatedly, you know, the skin thickens into callus almost in anticipation of, of ongoing friction or to protect it from future friction. Why, you know, our, the soles of our feet are so uh, thick and, you know, pr- can protect us against whatever we step on. Um, Even when skin is exposed to sunlight, you know, the ionizing radiation that might hurt DNA, skin gets tan, which on the cellular level, you actually see when in tanned skin, you see just these little plugs of of melanin, of pigment, of dark pigment, right in front of the nucleus of the cells, because that's what you're protecting from the ionizing radiation, the genetics, the genes, you, you know, to prevent mutation, which can lead to skin cancer. Um, So there's just this, it's not the whole skin that the whole cell of the skin darkens is actually just this little perfectly sized plug of dark pigment to almost like, you know, a pair of sunglasses right over the nucleus of the cell uh, to fend off ionizing radiation. So skin is adaptive uh, in all those ways and and very intelligent, as you said.
0: Chapter nine covers another excretion that may cause some people to become uncomfortable, but. I don't get uncomfortable with things like this John so we're going to talk Good. about urine why have you always been partial to urine over the many other enticing bodily fluids worth studying
1: They are all enticing aren't they you know most people probably never considered what uh, what their favorite bodily fluid is and probably most physicians too you know actually a lot of physicians choose their there's an old adage in medicine that physicians choose their specialty based on what bodily fluid is the least disgusting for them so many many surprisingly, many cannot take sputum, you know, that is the phlegm kind of that cleanses the respiratory tract and is coughed up. Um, and to
0: your your point real quick, my wife is a uh, family nurse practitioner and and that is the thing that she cannot stand. Even when our kids, she has the hardest time with our seven and five-year-old when it comes to that sort of thing. So I actually have to step in, in that moment.
1: Yes. Mucus, especially respiratory tract mucus has a special place Uh, For the public, too, you know, when you hear someone kind of with a wet cough next to you on public transportation, even before COVID, you know, you're kind of thinking, oh, boy, what am I going to get from them? What dreaded disease? You know, now COVID, obviously, anyone even sneezes, you're looking at them cross. But um,
0: as somebody put early uh, in the pandemic, you used to try and cover up farts with coughs and that whole process reversed (laughs) once COVID got going, right?
1: (laughs) That's great. I have not heard that before. Even I'm surprised after two years of this that I have not heard that (laughs) that's hilarious um, but yes you know um, even like my nieces for instance, I remember when when my uh, sister explained to them that they that I work in the ER you know their first question is oh my God isn't blood so disgusting and what I had to explain to them was actually like blood most uh, people who work in healthcare are fine with blood it's actually phlegm or lung mucus or sputum that that is the most gross um, but I never you know I was kind of always, Easygoing about those things, I found none of them too repulsive to work with, and each had their own interesting aspects. And kind of using each, you know, using every bodily fluid, whether it's feces, urine, saliva, uh, you know, vomit, uh, everything, bile, you know, everything can be used for um, for diagnosis. You know, reading the signs of disease in any bodily fluid is is a lot of the job of a of a physician, actually, and so. Lung mucus in particular provides this window into the lungs and what's happening down there and interpreting it is kind of an art and a science like much of uh, much of clinical medicine. Um, but there is something about it that is uh, very repulsive. For me, I found uh, while each bodily fluid had its own kind of unique features and had its things I liked about it in terms of figuring out disease, urine was unique. It seemed to sort of be all, all knowing and all seeing in a way Uh, You know, urine is uh, not only helps us diagnose conditions of the urinary tract, you know, whether it's a problem with the kidneys, the ureters, the bladder, et cetera, but also kind of sends these messages about other organs throughout the body, other systems kind of tells you about things that you would think are completely unrelated to the kidney, everything from what drug someone's done, you know, when you do a urine test for that to uh, that, you know, there are tests on the urine that tell you what kind of bacteria is causing pneumonia in the lungs, which is sort of unexpected. Why would you look in the urine to figure out pneumonia? Um, you know, it, one of the most classic diagnoses are to test the urine f- for sugar uh, in diabetes. And uh, in that way, it almost tells you about this, uh, either the pancreas's function or the kind of metabolic health of the body as a whole and the endocrine milieu of, of hormones like insulin and glucagon in the bloodstream. And so urine has this kind of all-seeing quality that I really liked, and when I saw a really, uh, a really smart nephrologist at my medical school use urine to sort of uh, tell the entire diagnostic story of this patient with multiple medical problems, he sort of wove this whole tale just by looking at urine under the microscope. That was really impressive. As I say in the book, he almost seemed like a sorcerer, and urine was his crystal ball, and, uh, and I kind of became fascinated with that with that bodily fluid from then on. And as my career progressed, I kind of found new and interesting reasons to love urine, you know, in the ER, a lot of what I do is, diagnose. Or I figure out kind of the severity of a person's disease. You know, if someone has pneumonia, uh, someone can go home with pneumonia. Someone could be admitted to the hospital with pneumonia. Someone could be in the ICU with pneumonia. If someone needs to be intubated right now for pneumonia, you know, there's, what level is it at? And, and a lot of times, Kind of urine and testing the kidney function with blood tests can kind of be a a way of telling me how severe it is. I mean, there's the patient's oxygen level, et cetera. There's other things that are obviously measurements of the lung itself. But when I, with any kind of disease, whether it's vomiting, diarrhea, pneumonia, urinary tract infection, you know, if I see that the kidneys fail or the urine output is low, that's a very important red flag for any um, healthcare worker. Any provider to to determine and kind of it, it helps you figure out that this disease is more severe. Um, um, and then, as you know, you know, I go on to kind of even deeper, deeper appreciations for urine, my favorite bodily fluid, where I kind of reflect, as I often do in the book, you know, kind of reflect on the normal things I do as a doctor and my interactions with patients, and sort of think more deeply about what it says about our bodies and our our past and sometimes our future. And so urine is almost this window into ancient history. You know, urine keeps our blood at a perfectly perfect level of saltiness. You know, there's a certain amount of sodium and chloride and other salts like potassium, calcium, magnesium. They all have to be at exactly the right level for our body to function correctly. And many of the problems people come to the ER with end up being caused by some imbalance in in electrolytes or salts. And so basically the kidneys work every day of our lives from before birth until death especially when we're sick, they're working overtime to keep water and salt in the body, to keep all the salt proportions in our body at just the right level for health. And that level happens to be the same saltiness as the ocean, which is sort of a sign that our ancestors, you know, evolved in the ocean. And when we came out, started living on dry land, drinking fresh water, and we were able to maintain that saltiness in our blood thanks to urine and, uh, you know, without urine, Keep, you know, without the kidneys making urine as they do, and without urine constantly flowing out of our bodies, we could never uh, have gone onto land, live on land for for eons now, carrying a little bit of that salty ocean inside of us. You know, as I say, our cells don't even know we left the ocean because they're still being bathed in this salty, uh, you know, oceanic solution that is our blood.
0: That was and is such a beautiful observation there. Thank you for that. Chapter 10 is on fat. Obesity is obviously an epidemic in this country and one that seems to be getting worse by the year, John. How much of obesity is a medical disease and how much of it is a lack of self-control reflected by continually poor lifestyle choices?
1: Right. And to be honest, it's a little of both. It's a little of everything, right? I think, and as I say in the book, you know, in recent years, you know, I I sort of see things like addiction or chemical dependence as a similar uh, thing where- in the past, I think it was seen as, you know, a crime or just a personal failing. And today, we sort of have this more nuanced view where, you know, the person is both a, a victim of processes they cannot control and is also somewhat responsible for what goes on. It's this, it's this combination that's very hard to parse. Um, and sometimes blaming can get in the way of adequate medical treatment, which there is often is, um, you know, for addiction and dependence. There's been treatments for a while, actually, we're sort of just starting to recognize that and use it more frequently, perhaps still not enough. And the same with obesity, you know, to some extent, obesity is a natural product of modern life. You know, you can see where, for instance, uh, one of the ERs I've worked in or one of the hospitals I've worked in is in the Northern Alaskan town of Kotzebue, just about 50 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And, you know, obesity is rampant among the Inupiat Eskimo that live there, as it is in every community in the U.S., but I think uh, the Inupiat offer a unique lesson because they kind of went from a, a prehistoric uh, hunter-gatherer, mostly hunter, since there isn't that much plant life to eat up there, a subsistence lifestyle with no metal of any kind even, um, you know, they were using stone and ivory um, for their hunting points. They went from that existence to a modern a modern existence of being a couch potato and watching TV, just like the rest of us, you know, in the shortest time span possible. Um, And I think that when, you you know, I think in many parts of the Alaskan Arctic contact was in the mid 1800s or so and so in about, you know, five, four or five generations, they went from stone age to the space age as a famous Arctic writer, Peter Freakin has said. And um, I think that just illustrates that when you take you know what was probably hunter and gatherer for most of their evolutionary history and sit them down in front of a tv and feed them doritos like things like obesity but also other aspects of metabolic disease are going to happen you know there's going to be a lot of diabetes high blood pressure cholesterol chronic kidney disease and obesity to some extent uh, you know as i talk in the chapter a lot of those are seen as diseases that can be treated you know we have 20 different blood pressure medicines, maybe more to choose from. There's, there's ever-growing number of cholesterol medications that we can use to lower, you know, there's, I mean, an arsenal of treatments for diabetes, whether, inje- you know, pills to be taken or injections. Uh, but obesity is kind of this other aspect of, mod- you know, modern life that we sort of treat as a personal failing instead of seeing it on this spectrum of just sort of what happens when the human body lives a modern life, you know, and there are medications even in the last few years, if you have come out, they're not very effective, but, you know, they do help people lose weight. And, um, you know, it's sort of, uh, I think doctors are sort of used to just sort of blaming the person, even while we perhaps now more recognize addiction as a disease instead of a personal choice, we still have not evolved on the issue of obesity. Um, We're, you know, a lot of those medications and treatments are woefully under-prescribed and um, yeah, it's complicated, but I think doctors are are getting a more nuanced view, I hope, and, and laying off the fat shaming for once.
0: On that subject, the medical schools, are they failing to provide doctors and training with an adequate education on nutrition?
1: I think that they are trying uh, again, but I think that, you know, nutritional science is so uh, disappointingly in its infancy, yeah. you know, even after all these decades of false starts. And, you know, I mean, figuring out kind of vitamins, and roll, you know, all this sort of is only in the last century, you know, the 20th century is when we figured out most of vitamins and that you need them and breaking down what nutritious food means onto the molecular level. And we're still sort of getting back, you know, working towards a better understanding of of these issues you know we kind of demonized fat forever and now it seems like a lot of that was kind of misplaced demonization you know every new decade there's a new food we demonize and another superfood that we promote and you know a lot of there's also a lot of marketing and advertising swirling together with nutritional science flip-flopping back and forth constantly Um, so I think I left med school confused And I think our patients are even more confused, you know, where we're telling, giving them advice that's constantly changing. Um, But I, I think we're getting somewhere. I think we're making some progress, but I, and I think medical schools are adapting to what nutritional science says. And I think nutritional science, unfortunately, is just really kind of first starting to figure things out. I mean, we know a lot for sure. We know a lot, you know, fruits and vegetables, I think it can be said are are very good for you that being said some people go on all meat diet and they feel like a million bucks you know god bless i cannot explain that but if it makes you feel good rock on um so i i think the the coming decades will be very important and i think we're going to see a lot of progress in most importantly bias free nutritional understanding where we can kind of shed what we used to think and just really figure out once and for all what the hell is good for us and what's not. And that changes from person to person, from culture to culture. As your genes change, your, your, your diet changes, you know that Newpid Eskimo could have low cholesterol subsisting on a diet with more than half made up from raw animal uh, blubber, animal fat from marine mammals like whales, walruses, and seals. Can someone who is not, you know, who doesn't have the specific genes bred through living for millennia in the Arctic do that? Well, I'm not sure. That study has not been done yet. Perhaps it should be.
0: Maybe so. You allow the readers to take in the lungs in chapter 11. Interestingly, you return to the subject of food for this chapter. In 1969, the USDA studied livestock lungs to figure out if they were suitable for human consumption. What were their conclusions, John?
1: Their conclusions, unfortunately, were that lungs are not fit for human consumption. Um, Though the reasoning, I I take a lot of, uh, you know, I don't agree with the medical, the supposedly medical reasoning, you know, basically they dissected a bunch of lungs in this study, in the, excuse me, in the late sixties, they found things like dust, pollen, fungal spores floating in the air, um, you know, soot perhaps in small amounts in these lungs and discovered them really deep in the airways, perhaps deeper than might be discovered in a normal kind of post-mortem USDA inspection to determine that the, you know, the organ or the meat is is fit for human consumption and so for fear of having a bunch of lungs with things like flower pollen and some fungal spores and other things deep in their airways on the food market the US government felt like it was more um more effective and efficient to just ban lungs altogether so you cannot sell human lungs for or you sorry you can't sell human lungs at all you can't sell animal lungs for human food uh currently in the US and some other countries as well and you uh but You'll see often in stores, there's lung treats for dogs. That's okay. Just humans cannot eat them. It really makes no medical sense because those, first of all, those things are not harmful to be eaten. You know, we inhale all those things all day, every day from the first breath we take after being born until the last breath that we take, you know, probably none of us have ever taken a breath that doesn't have some dust or uh, fungal spores in it, you know, which are ubiquitous in the environment in this lower atmosphere that we breathe in. And, um you know the way so we breathe them in every day and the way our lungs clean themselves actually is by secreting this constant flow of mucus Mm. that comes up the up the airways up into the throat and we swallow most often uh subconsciously we're not aware it's in very small amounts that we don't notice you know when you get sick there's larger amounts and you notice that but every day of our lives we're swallowing our own lung mucus sorry to be the one to tell you you know full of, of of spores and dust and you know all these other quote unquote contaminants. So we're already eating it. So it basically, and I don't think any of that's unhealthy anyway. I wouldn't wanna breathe in a huge amount of fungal spores, you know. or if your immune system is compromised, breathing in some of those fungal spores because it could result in a pneumonia, but that's very far from believing that swallowing some of them is dangerous to you in any way. I just don't believe it is, but they're still illegal because no one really cares is, is the bottom line. No one's pushing. For lungs to be available on restaurant menus anymore
0: Now I'm jealous because you actually tried lung at a Bulgarian restaurant in Israel. What was it like?
1: Um, so it was uh, it was a delicious dish I, I looked kind of far and wide in the us you know tried to find some lung black market, which I was unable to locate if it exists. <laughs> um, spoke to a bunch of elderly people who used to cook some traditional lung dish and no longer can because it's not available. But I did find in in, in Israel um, a, a restaurant uh, where they did serve lungs and it was it was quite a tasty dish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was sort of, as I say in the book, lungs are sort of like the tofu of the body. They take on whatever taste of the sauce that they're soaked in. And so those lungs tasted like a delicious tomato gravy. Um, and my son, who was only one at the time and didn't really have a choice in trying it or not, seemed to like it as well. So,
0: oh, wow. That's very cool. Now, chapter 12, you focus in on the eyes. Why is eye contact important for you with your patients, John?
1: Right. As I say, you know, med- medicine, we often say medicine is an art and a science. Um, but I would add to that, that med- practicing medicine is really a very social act. You know, your patient-doctor relation is really just two humans um, having a relationship, a very unique relationship with one another, where one is tasked with kind of assessing, determining, diagnosing, and treating how many issues that might exist with the other one. Um, so, you know, it seems like a very scientific act. And I talked earlier about when you're listening information from patients, whether it's about their gastrointestinal health or otherwise, you know, communication, understanding what they're trying to tell you is very important and not getting lost in vague and imprecisely defined terms. So, um, um, But but it's also just a social act and you have to be, you know, a human, quote unquote, bedside manner means just sort of being a human and interacting with another human on a kind of everyday level, even while you're um, figuring out what's wrong with them and helping them solve the problem. Um, so, eye, and eye contact, as in, so, as in real life, you know, eye contact is kind of the foundation or one foundation for the relationship between two people. You know, when we say, look, if someone looks at you, we kind of say, we say that when they look at your eyes, basically, right? Because that's where we see ourselves. We sort of experience life looking out from behind our eyes in a way. We're not in our feet. We're more like behind our eyes um, because of kind of the preeminence of vision in our perception and experiencing of daily life. And so when we meet other humans, kind of looking at each other is a big part of it. And same with doctor-patient relationship. You know, if I, I've been in rooms where doctors make no eye contact with patients. I've been that patient. It's very unpleasant, awkward, dehumanizing. Uh, does not inspire confidence in their ability to be your doctor, uh, even though it should have no relation to that, theoretically. Um, And, uh, you know, even too much eye contact can also be a little awkward, and I've seen that too. And so it's kind of just finding that sweet spot of of eye contact that helps while you're talking to the patient. You know, before I listen to their lungs, before I listen to their heart, push on their belly, I'm making eye contact. It's kind of the first and in some ways the most important way of connecting with your patient.
0: Chapter 13 is on mucus. We've talked a little bit about that. So we're going to skip ahead to Chapter 14, Fingers and Toes. Why is it important to assess the temperature of a finger or toe when treating an injury to that digit?
1: Right. So one of the, as I, uh, anyone who learns um, emergency medicine or works in an emergency room understands and knows that, whenever a limb is injured, whether it's your arm, anywhere from your shoulder to your hand, or your leg, anywhere from your hip to your foot, um, one of the most important factors is, is determining that blood flow is getting down that limb and that this injury is not disrupting the blood vessels. Um, You know, everything in the body, every cell, every body part and tissue depends on moment to moment blood flow, bringing nutrients like oxygen and other things. And if that is halted for whatever reason, that is your biggest priority as a doctor. So if someone comes in with a a deformed fracture, if I feel that there's no, uh, that for instance, like they break their leg, I want to know, is their toes or foot? cold, that can tell me that uh, blood flow is not getting past that injury, perhaps a broken bone is pushing on an artery and stopping the blood flow. The same with a broken finger. You know, if the tip of that finger is cold, perhaps purple and splotchy in color, it can tell me that blood flow is not getting there. And so my most urgent task is to open up uh, the, that reestablish the blood flow, which can often mean straightening out a bone or something like that. Um, But so, yes, blood flow is is very important. And so temperature kind of tells you that, you know, blood flow brings heat from the core, from the torso, the chest and abdomen out to the extremities, and making sure it can get there um, is one of the most important things for the survival of our digits. And that goes for both when in an extreme cold, as I write about in the fingers and toes chapter, but also in in daily life.
0: Just two questions uh, left. We're going to start with the final chapter, chapter 15, blood. Why do plastic surgeons occasionally use leeches as a part of their treatment?
1: So leeches have have, uh, come back into fashion in recent decades. You know, historically, they were seen as a treatment for a wide variety of conditions. Removing blood was seen as an important part of of treating disease of all kinds, from mental illness to bodily illness and and everything. Uh, Removing blood from the body based on a completely erroneous understanding of, of health and disease, which we thankfully moved past. Um, but it, it, leeches have come back into fashion now as a, an, as a kind of a way of helping uh, with blood flow to tissue that is either moved from one part of the body to the other or reattached after it's cut off. You know, a lot of plastic surgeons move, move tissue around. That's how one plastic surgeon described their job to me. You know, people who have a big defect, a uh, big sunken out Part of their body, maybe due to a big trauma, due to surgery, a big cancer removed. You know, you have to take tissue from elsewhere, and there's some very interesting and parts of the body where you can get spare tissue from. That's a whole um, kind of complicated thing in itself. But you know, when you move that tissue to the the defect to fill it to make the uh, appearance better, keeping the blood flow established is very important. So that tissue must get blood flow, and it must also be able to drain blood flow through veins. Veins are very fragile, hard to sew together, often fail. Um, They, you know, blood flowing slowly through veins is more likely to clot than when it's um, surging under pressure through arteries. And so veins often fail in these transplants or in the case of the patient I talk about in the blood chapter, had his finger nearly completely cut off. Reestablishing the blood flow is important to let it survive. Um, and after this patient's surgery, the arteries did great, but the veins failed and the, the, the finger started filling with blood that had no way out. There was no veins for it to flow back out through to the heart. And so that's where leeches come in. They would attach a leech to this guy's finger every hour for several days and the leech would drink a bunch of blood and then some blood would leak out of the wound from the bite for several minutes after. And actually that the, the, that dripping after the leech bite is accounts for much of the leech's effect. Uh, more blood drips out than the leech can actually drink itself. And so uh, over a few days, the veins do grow back together. And then uh, you can kind of wean off the leech regimen. And so this, this has been used in a variety of body parts. And uh, some people think it has a lot of other uses too, but currently that's the most studied use.
0: And lastly, John, why is empathy such a crucial component of patient care for you?
1: Good question. Um, empathy is crucial. You know, as I said, being being a doctor or being in a doctor-patient relationship, you know, being a doctor, you it, it's sort of bizarre, especially in the emergency room. You know, you have these fleeting relationships with complete strangers, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds over weeks and months, people you'll probably never see again um you go from not knowing them to discussing their most intimate details of their lives and their in their body and what's happening with their body and what's happening in the bedroom and what's happening in the bathroom and what's happening in their you know emotional psychological uh lives and so and then you know you help them hopefully and not always but hopefully you do and hopefully you don't hurt them and then they're gone and then you don't see them again so um, there's these fleeting relationships can be very it can be very hard to kind of always maintain our most human face and to kind of relate to them on a on a level as a human you know we tend to see them as their disease alone we tend to not see the person behind the disease and we tend to often as we've talked about in the cases of addiction obesity but also you know like liver failure like right, which is another out outgrowth of alcohol addiction um you know, blaming patients is is a way of dehumanizing. There's so many ways to dehumanize them in the normal course of medicine. You know, they're being undressed and dressed and thrown from one table to the next. And it's, you know, once they're admitted and transferred, it's hard for them to get off the merry-go-round, you know, so there's so many ways in which patients are dehumanized in our healthcare system. Some avoidable, some not, you know, just relating to people on a human-to-human level is so important um, because, you know, As I said, they're already being dehumanized. Like, make them feel a little human. Give them a little bit of eye contact. You know, uh, relate to them on that emotional, human level, as opposed to seeing them as simply a diagnostic puzzle with a right answer, as if they're a multiple choice question. So, I just think empathy really kind of um, undergirds everything that we do as healthcare providers, and and it's very easy to lose sight of that empathy. Very easy, especially when you're stressed and your hospitals are overrun with COVID and and many other stressors of life, you know, before and during COVID and into the future. So it's hard, but it, it, must, it must be part of our jobs to maintain empathy. And so it's, I think it's very important.
0: Agreed with that. Jonathan Reisman, MD, is a doctor of internal medicine and pediatrics who has practiced at Massachusetts General Hospital, as well as some of the world's most remote places. As a writer, his work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Slate, and more. And he's just published his first book titled The Unseen Body, A Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of Human Anatomy. You can get it now wherever books are sold. John, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this wonderful book.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Join me next time when I speak with science writer and filmmaker Jackie Higgins on Sentient, how animals illustrate the wonder of our human senses. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.